welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Well, good morning, everybody. I hate to break up the connecting because it feels like we should probably just spend the whole time doing that, uh, building some friendships. Uh, my name is Stefan Van Borst. I'm a friend of Micah and a friend of many people in this community. Uh, so it's really great to be here. I had to cross the river this morning from Minneapolis. And truth be told, yeah, I just don't do that much. Uh, so, and then figure out how to get around the marathon. Um, I'm the perfect guy to have speak on Marathon Sunday because I just don't understand the marathon. <laughs> it's like, when somebody says race, I think win. But this is the only, it's like when you have to say race and the goal is finish, I'm like, that's not a race. That's a terrible, terrible thing you're doing. Uh, anyway, so, but it's, it's so inspiring to see people um, doing that and uh, I'm encouraged by this community just doing it for a purpose as well. It's, it's awesome. Uh, I've spoken here three times before when Mike was on sabbatical and so this is my fourth time. And uh, it might seem like that's not a lot, or for some of you it might be a lot. <laughs> uh, uh, but it is a lot when you really only have one message. And that's kind of all I got. Um, so everything's a variation on a theme, and today is no different. Um, uh, so you're going to hear a variation on a theme today, but um, hopefully it can encourage us and move us in a direction together. Uh, I spend most of my days, my job time, in schools, in middle schools in particular, um, bringing mentors and kids together uh, in school during school day. And so we have a program where kids come out of class and they go to mentoring class. Most of those mentors come from the college, the local colleges, and uh, we've been doing it, this is our ninth year, and we've matched well, it'll be over about a thousand kids with mentors um, in that time period. And the, the great thing about being around for nine years and being in this context is you get to see change over time. And one of the things that I continue to be reminded about with young people is that I'm not a young person. <laughs> uh, things are different. And they're different. Uh, and so part of my job is to figure out what makes them so different and how do we make sure that we're supporting and encouraging them in the best way that we know. And so um, the only way I really have to understand the difference is comparison. And that comparison is to when I was a kid. Because that's actually how I, I you know, we all function out of our own experience, right? And that's how we see our world and that's what forms our worldview. And so... I'm always looking at their experience and then having to relate it to mine to understand, like, how do I think about this? And I've noticed over the last few years that there's some major, major differences. And so I want to share some of those major differences, all right? Um, the first difference is that when I was a teenager, I, I grew up in the 80s um, and early 90s, and the thing that I couldn't wait for was getting my driver's license. It was like, I lived in rural Iowa, there's just not a lot to do, but there's a lot of road. <laughs> and I was a car guy. My, my father owned an auto body shop. And so 
for, for me to have my license, to have a car, I restored a 1970 Plymouth Roadrunner with my dad when I was a teenager. And so getting that piece of muscle on the road was like priority number one. So on November 3, um, it was a snowstorm in Iowa, and my mom said, well, it looks like you're not going to get your license today when I turn 16. I said, no, Mom, I'm, I'm going to get my license today. And so we got into our Crown Victoria station wagon, and I drove to Sheldon, Iowa, and in a snowstorm, I took my driving test. I, I parallel parked that thing like a pro in the snow. And I left with my driver's license, and I was a free man. I've never been the same since, because uh, I have my license. But getting a license and having that thing be such a priority is shifting. So I want to show you um, some, some data here. So it's going to be kind of small print, but I, you just look at the trends, okay? So this is showing the percentage of 12th graders who drove it all in the last year and who have a driver's license. And it starts on the left, it's 1976, okay? So this is uh, almost 40 years, uh, all the way to 2014. And what I want you to see is look what happens uh, about the last quarter of those years, the last 10 years. It drastically shifts that how I was thinking about getting a license and driving is not the same anymore. It is not the norm. Uh, it's declined a lot. Another thing when I was a kid is that I had the coolest family in the world. And I loved being with them, but I also really loved not being with them. And it was this great thing where it was like, as much as I could get out of the house and be more independent and free, um, the better, you know? And, and so for me to get away from my parents was a big deal. But kids aren't doing that as much anymore. What I want, this is a graph showing the percentage of students who go out two nights or more without their parents. And what I've done in these next few graphs that you see is um, there's an orange kind of dotted line. That's 2009. And I want you to just see what's happened in the last 10 years. So the previous, you know, 20 years or so, and then, then looking at the last 10 years, all right? Um, and the reality is, is that uh, it's changing significantly in terms of how much kids spend time without their parents, all right? Uh, another component of my childhood was the more I was with my friends, the better. I loved being up with my friends. My best friend in high school picked me up for school every day. We would go to whatever rehearsal we had that day. We were musicians and singers and all that stuff. And then after school, we would go to sport, you know, uh, uh, what do you call sports stuff? Um, <laughs> haven't, haven't spent a lot of time with sports lately. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyway, <laughs> practices. <laughs> um, and then at night, we'd have more rehearsals and stuff like that. And then on the weekends, we had this cheesy Christian band called Melchizedek. <laughs> and so on the weekends, we'd play music together. I mean, it was rock and roll. And, and uh, we were together almost 24-7. It was like we spent almost every waking hour together. And that little group of friends formed so much of how I understood the world, how I understood relationship, and still to this day have become one of the most important parts of my childhood. Um, but kids spending time together is shifting as well. So this is the percentage of students who get together with friends nearly every day. And as you can see, since 2009, um, that is drastically changing and dropping. Kids just are not spending time with each other. 
with friends uh, nearly as much as they used to. Uh, another piece of my childhood was I couldn't wait to date. Um, but that was pretty limited in the definition of that. Uh, in Northwest Iowa, you had to drive an hour to get to a movie theater, and then you would go out to eat, and then you'd go home, and that was the date. And that was the date every, every time you went on a date. There wasn't a lot of creativity. Um, but nonetheless, there was something about that um, that I loved and being a part of, uh, but that's changing as well. So this is the percentage of students who, who never go out on dates. And as you can see, it's increased significantly in the last uh, 10 years, where students are, are not going out on dates either. And then the last thing is, I was the guy that would love to have parties, and I wanted people over and uh, throw on some music, have a great time, and so it was like the more we were together in parties and dancing, all that kind of stuff, uh, the happier I was. Um, but young people are not going to parties like they used to either. Um, this is the percentage of students who go to parties once a month or more. And as you can see, since 2009, that's changed significantly. Now, there are people who, when they look at these stats, there's some outcomes of these stats that people get encouraged by. And that is, um, teens aren't necessarily doing some of the stupid stuff I did. Because they're not out as much. And so you see drops in teen pregnancy, uh, drinking, things like this, which we would say, oh, that's good. But the problem is, is that there's also some correlating data that would say they're not doing well. <laughs> Young people aren't doing well. Now, it would be uh, fair to ask, if, if they're not doing, spending time in the things that I used to spend time on, what are they spending time doing? And this probably comes as no surprise, is that their world uh, looks different because of technology. So on the left, the earliest year is 2009. So again, this is the last 10 years, okay? And this is the percentage of students who spend over 20 hours a week online, not including education and work. So this is out of school and out of work. Um, this is for 10th graders and 8th graders. That's how much has changed for students online. We, we uh, build mentoring programs in schools, and a lot of, as I said, these mentors are college students. Um, anywhere between the ages of 18 and 25 are the majority of them. And so we've been training for these last few weeks. And during the training, we talk through all this stuff about how we connect and social connection. And then we have everybody pull out their phones and look at their screen time. You know, iPhones, is in particular, it, it tracks your screen time, what you've been doing, everything. And then everybody has to write it out on a piece of paper. And then we have a, a timeline on the wall, and you go stick it on the wall. And for some people, it's like, oh, God. You know, it's just like humiliating. Uh, and, and it's fascinating to see how much people are on their screens. And most of our group averages probably around four to five hours a day on their screens. We had a middle school student one time, my staff, uh, uh, a staff member of mine was checking in with her and said, what'd you do over the weekend? No, oh, not much. He said, well, what do you mean not much? Where were you? And this middle school girl says, well, I was at home. Well, what were you doing at home? She says, ah, just mostly on Snapchat and my phone and stuff like that. And my, co my uh, colleague says, well, how much time were you on your phone? She says, I don't know. She says, well, pull out your phone. Let's just look at the screen time once. So she pulls it out. And on Sunday of that weekend, she was on her phone for 19 hours. Sitting at home by herself on a phone for 19 hours. 
It's amazing. When you think about 20 hours a week, that, that's a day, a week. How people are spending their time these days is drastically different. And we can look, if you're an older person in the room, you could look at this, yeah, this is the problem. You know, you sound old, right? When you start thinking, look, there's a problem with kids. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, is all of my friends, including myself and my wife, we wrestle with these same challenges. In 2007, this thing came out. I love this thing. In 2008, they sold 11,000 copies, 2009, 22,000, and it doubled every year for a number of years. The smartphone changed the scene, and it changed how we relate. And the interesting thing is, I've heard people talk about how much more connected we are. And there is some truth to that in the sense that we're connected to all sorts of information. Um, my kids know if they have a question, Google can answer that question. They can get anything. But there's some correlating data that also goes with this that is troubling. And it's not just true of young people, but young people, to me, are an indicator of what's ahead. They're an indicator of, uh, uh, they're, they're good kind of test of where we're at as a society. So I want you to see some of this stuff. Um, what scientists are calling this out of uh, a group of scientists in particular that I follow out of NYU in um, New York uh, called Patch, they're calling this a crisis of connection and that there's a couple things happening. One is, in our culture, because we're not connecting uh, socially in the ways that um, we had, uh, we have declining trust and declining empathy in our culture. It's just declining. With that, there's an incline in anxiety, depression, uh, isolation, and loneliness. So as trust and empathy are declining, these other things are, are, are increasing. And how that breaks down and how that kind of plays out is uh, there's two crises of connection. One is with self. That because we're not connecting uh, as much, there's a crisis of connection with self. And we see this in the rising uh, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and isolation. But all of that stuff leads somewhere, right? And so this is where we see increase in mass violence, in suicide, um, physical health problems. Uh, I think I've actually said this here before, but loneliness now, they attribute, it's the, the mortality rate to loneliness is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Same mortality rate. That's amazing. <laughs> so there's a lot of problems that come with it. Um, actually, I don't know if you know this, in St. Paul, two of the leading researchers around mass violence and mass shooters live in St. Paul. Uh, Dr. Jill Peterson and Dr. James Densley. I work with both of them in our work that we do with police and kids. And um, one of the things they've found that's consistent among mass violence and mass shooters in America is that almost all of them are suicidal. That it isn't necessarily a, a thing to go out and um, just about hurting others, but they don't have any, um, the, the, any understanding that they're going to get out alive. So this is uh, a major issue in our society that we're struggling with. Here's some of the research. They um, looked at kids across the country and said, what, what do you think are the most significant problems you have? 
and 70% of teenagers said anxiety and depression was a, was a major problem. 26% said it was a minor problem, and only 4% said it wasn't a problem at all. It was the top. And what's so interesting to me about that is when I was a teenager, I didn't, I don't even know the words anxiety and depression. Like, no, nobody ever mentioned that, and it's at the top. And so it's changed a lot in terms of what young people are thinking about and what they're carrying and what they're seeing around. Um, in addition to that, uh, here's some of the, come on, little pointer. Uh, this is the percentage of students who take a positive attitude towards themselves. Look what's happened in the last 10 years. Now we're just going to fly through some of these. This is the percentage of students who, on the whole, are satisfied with themselves. This is the percentage of students who feel their life is not very useful. This is the percentage of students who, a lot of times, feel lonely. This is the percentage of students who often feel left out of things. And then this is the percentage of students who've had a major depressive episode in the last 12 months. Now, uh, the top line is 12 to 17-year-olds, and the bottom line, the green one, is 18 to 25-year-olds. And part of what's significant about that is that if you're 18 to 25, you're kind of on the front end of the generation that experienced this shift in our culture. And um, what I think it's harder for older people to recognize, including myself, is that there's a generation of people who the only world they've ever known is a world that has smartphones, a world that has social media, and that world of connecting. They're natives to this world. For those of us that are older, that were born before 1999, basically, we are not natives to this world. We're always going to be outsiders. We're immigrants. And so to understand what they're experiencing and what they're going through, um, we won't be able to understand that unless we listen to them. They have to tell us. And it flips from thinking the older people know and say, we look at the young people and say, we've got, you got to figure this out. But we actually don't know what, at all what it's like to sit, live in their shoes. We don't know. And so this is where it becomes very important that the natives help us. Um, and young people can do that. The other part of the crisis of connection is a connection with others. And this you really see in the decline of trust and the decline of empathy. In 2012, they took a poll of high school seniors asking about trusting other people. And at that time, only 16% of high school seniors said other people could be trusted. 16%. Millennials, it was 19%. For I'm a Gen Xer, it was up in the 20s, lowest 30%. Um, this has declined significantly. When you get, then when you break it down by race, in 2012, black students, it was only 11%. So trust is on an all-time low, and trust is crucial in building relationship. If you don't have trust, good luck. It's crucial. They also, um, some, they, they look at uh, empathy, and they, they have done research with college students about how much they think about their friends, things like that. And some are looking at that as declining 40% in the last 20 years. We just are, it's, we're putting ourselves in other people's shoes less <laughs> to try to understand what they're carrying and what they're dealing with. And the natural thing that this leads to is income inequality, education inequity, violence, hate crimes, a lot of the stuff that we see in our communities. Um, and in the schools I work in, we see it a lot. Um, we, just to give you an idea of the violence, 
So this is a, a graph of violence in Minnesota schools. On the left is the number of fights, and on the right, it's the number of assaults. And what's amazing to me, it's kind of small print, so you might not be able to see it, but uh, in one year, the number of fights increased by 2,000 in Minnesota schools. 2,000. And, and I, I mentioned these three boys I get to spend time with every week, and they're delightful and amazing, and they've changed my life. Um, I was with them the other night, and uh, one of the boys said, yeah, I missed school on Friday and Monday. I said, why'd you miss school? He says, oh, I got in a fight. Um, and I said, well, why'd you get in a fight? You know, he's got all these questions to try to understand what happened. And basically, his part of the story was not these two guys that I don't really know just jumped me in school. And, you know, for, for myself and the community I grew up in, that just seems absolutely absurd. It's crazy. It's like, no way. No way. Some, there's more to the story. Um, but we've done enough work now with young people where we know that there's a percentage of young people that we work with on a weekly basis that never feel safe in school. Never feel safe. And the problem with violence, um, amongst, there's a lot of problems with violence, but one of the major problems with violence is if you've seen violence or experienced violence or been in the, in, around violence, your brain goes into a heightened sense of vigilance um, because our bodies are wired for it. It's about protection and safety. It's a fight or flight thing. And when your brain is in that mode, it's pretty hard to think about math. And so until we can decrease some of that anxiety and, and alleviate that sense of vigilance in, the, in their brain, it's going to be hard to learn. And so the, the impact of violence in the schools or in communities among young people and, and development of young people is very, very significant. So the, these are the things that I spend days thinking about. And uh, my work makes me think about it in the context of schools, young people, but my faith broadens that out much wider. My faith, I, I, I take beyond just the work into something else, and I start thinking about, man, what does this mean for our society? And with some of these other things we're seeing, are these the results of our disconnection as a, as a people group? And then what, what, if anything, does my faith have to say about this? <laughs> you know, like, what does this matter? And one of the things that I think is uh, very significant is that one of the first things we know about God is that God believes it is not good to be alone. It's one of the first things we know about God. From the book of Genesis, as God's creating the world and humanity hits the scene, right away you see God saying, it is not good for a person to be alone. So at the core of where everything begins is the recognition that we were never built to be alone. And then the way that I understand the story, and this is the simplified version, was that from that point on, God's working with people to understand how to relate to each other and to God. When you look at the Ten Commandments through that lens, what you have is a set of commandments that this is how you relate to God. And then another set of commandments is this is how you relate to each other. This is how you be a community. Don't kill each other. Don't commit adultery, right? This is all about relationship. And in the beginning, in the, in the garden, God just speaks these things. When the Ten Commandments come, God writes these things, right? But there's something about the spoken word 
and the written word that it was still hard for people to grasp. And they needed an example. And this is why Jesus becomes so significant. Because all of this thing from God of you should not be alone, this is how you live in community with me and with each other, needed the incarnate word. It needed that word to become flesh. To say, well, we'll show you. Here's an example. And Christians ever since have been trying to copy that example, to reflect that example for the world. This is how we live together. And in the beginning, um, the way that the church talks about this stuff is these are commandments, right? It's something that you should do. And when I think of commandment, I, I'm, I, I have a very rebellious thing in me <laughs> where I kind of cringe at the word commandment. I'm like, well, I, well, don't tell me what to do. But when you think about um, the idea that we were actually created with this, it's not a commandment to me. All of a sudden it moves into the territory of like, actually, this is the only way I become human. <laughs> is I have to live in accordance with this because I'm wired this way. And so I, in thinking about this, I, I've dove into um, some interesting uh, science done by Matthew Lieberman. He wrote a book called Social. And in this book, he wanted to study what was going on in the brain in various circumstances. And one of the things that he wanted to know with his colleagues is what happens when your brain is in rest mode? Like, what's the default mode for your brain? What's going on in your brain? Because your brain never turns off. There's something always going on. So what's going on? So he put these scanners on people's brains, and he had them do math problems. And then he would just say, rest for a minute. You do a math problem, rest for a minute. Math problem, rest for a minute. And what they wanted to see is what happens in the brain when this happens. During the math problems, the part of your brain that lights up is the analytical part. Makes sense. It turns on and everything else kind of goes quiet. As soon as it said, they said rest, the, the analytical part kind of goes quiet and the part that lights up is the part of your brain that does social cognition. It's the part of your brain that's thinking about relationship, about connection. And then they thought, well, if you have a minute of rest, because relationships are kind of all-consuming in our life, it would make sense that people just start thinking about it. Like, what I have to do today, I gotta pick up the kids, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So then they thought, well, let's change the experiment. So then they changed it to one math problem, two seconds rest. One math problem, one second rest. And they shortened the time frame. And what they found was the exact same results that as soon as your brain has a minute, the default mode is relational. The default mode of your brain is craving connection. So when you're not doing a math problem or trying to solve a problem, where your brain sits is thinking about connection. They started looking at this in young people and, and, and especially babies. And what they found is that as soon as babies are born, that part of their brain is lighting up. Before they can focus on anything, their brain's craving, craving connection. The only babies that they didn't see this in are premature. So literally, at the time of when you're supposed to be born, something happens inside you where your brain starts craving connection. And we know from science that if you don't get that connection, it has consequences throughout the life of a person. 
it isn't just that this is a good idea. It's actually, this is how we are human. And so to understand our humanity isolated from others is impossible. <laughs> it's our connection with each other that brings out that humanity. And so as we look at a culture that's becoming more and more disconnected, to me I say, oh no. How will we stay human? How do we keep our humanity? And what role do followers of Jesus play in this? The other thing that Lieberman found in their research is that they created a game uh, that they would watch. It was like a video game. And the game was three, basically three people playing catch with a ball in a video game. And they would tell the people that are part of the experiment, you just keep playing catch. We're going to see what's going on in your brain. But what they didn't know is at some point, two of the people were going to stop passing the ball to the third person. And all of a sudden, without any warning, you're left out of the game. And what they wanted to see is what happens. What they found is, as soon as you felt social exclusion in the game, you're left out. The part of your brain that lights up is the same part that processes physical pain. To say somebody has a broken heart, they died of a broken heart, there is actually truth to that. Our brain, when we experience exclusion, processes it like we process physical pain. Now imagine this. A young person's bullied online at school. The adult response to that is, oh, you just ignore them. But if you recognized every time a kid would go into a school they were being physically assaulted, your response would be very different. If you think about bullying in terms of your brain processing it like it processes physical pain, the consequences of bullying are far worse than we could ever imagine. So how we treat people, and the problem is, is that we're surrounded by media of leaders and adults in our society that bully. It just has become a norm that we talk to people a certain way or we say things about people. All of that stuff, you can't just ignore this stuff. Your brain actually can't do it. And so we've got to think about how, how are we excluding people and what's that communicating, what's that doing to people. But the flip side is this, and this is the good news. Every time you include somebody who's been excluded, it heals something. It heals something in them that they felt a pain. And so we have an opportunity because at the core of the message of Jesus was everyone always. Include. It's at the heart of it. Christians have had a profound ability to go through in, in history to reach out to the margins and include the people who weren't included. And we can still do that. When I was a kid, one of my favorite things is we had family friends who had a um, above-ground pool. It was like four feet deep, and it was a circle pool, right? And uh, in, in our community, not many families had a pool. In fact, they were the only family that had a pool, and thankfully, they were our friends. Uh, <laughs> so as a kid, we'd go to this pool, and it'd be multiple families, 
And you'd play around in the pool, and it was, like, really, really fun. But the, the best part was when all the adults, all the kids would get in the pool at the same time. And everybody would start going to the, you'd go to the outside of the pool, and everybody would just start walking in the same direction. You've done this, right? And before you know it, a current starts, and that thing just starts taking you away. And the adults, they're the ones that like, get it really moving. And I was like a medium size at that time in terms of my age. And I could touch and see four, you know, above four feet. But you're also kind of like running with it. And you feel like you're just running as fast as could be in this current. Um, but if you were little, you were at the mercy of that current. Like there was no like I'm participating in this. It's like, no, this has got me and I can't get out of it. <laughs> right? And so the little kids are flying around. The adults are running around, you know, and, it, and you just start this thing, and you get it going as fast as you could. But the most exhilarating moment of the whole experience was at some point, some adult would yell, switch! And at that point, everybody turns around and tries going the opposite way. The adults grab on, they dig in, and just fight, right? The medium-sized kids like me we would turn around, and we wouldn't get swept up in the current, but you just spun your tires. It was like, <laughs> you know, you're just like, feet are like moving, and you can't move, but you're just kind of like in it, right? The little kids, the only thing they could do is grab onto a big person, because there's no way they're going to be swept away. They needed somebody to hold on to, and hopefully that somebody has some grip. But at the sound of switch, everything changed. Because now something that was easy became a challenge. We had to go against something else. But the fact that we were going against it together meant little people could grab onto somebody if they needed it. it meant big people could come around and say, we can, we, can, we can do this, we can change this. And within a few minutes, the currents go in the opposite direction. When I think about the role of the church in America, what I wonder is, at what point will we collectively just say, switch? We're not going this way anymore. It will be challenging, and the vulnerable are gonna need something to hold on to. But the vulnerable is why we do it. <laughs> but we say, no, it's going to be hard. We might spin our tires a little bit. But switch. And to me, what that looks like is it isn't just uh, we get louder in our churches in the morning. But instead of maybe sending the text, we make a call so we can hear somebody's voice. Instead of figuring it out over email, we make a coffee date. Instead of walking through the line on our phone, we ask the barista how he's doing in the morning. Instead of riding to football practice with our kids, we say, hey, put the phone down. I got a question for you. But we start thinking about what are the little ways in our day that we can choose connection. And it might not be necessarily for the other person but so that we could practice our switch. That we could keep saying, no, I, I'm going to go against this thing. And as easy as it would be for me to continue to isolate, I'm not going to do it. 
All of that to me is about a kind of resistance that our world desperately needs. <laughs> because we're becoming more disconnected. And not only did Jesus say, love God, love your neighbor with all your heart, and you know, all that, like love, love people, love each other. It, 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 in that commandment, it's an invitation to wholeness. It's an invitation to become human. It's actually the only way we thrive. And so to recognize that Jesus is constantly inviting us into that movement, where at any moment when I meet a person, I can choose something different. As we close today, uh, Melody said, and I, I knew this, I just forgot that we always spend a few seconds in silent reflection. So I want to keep the silence. And there might be some reflection, but I want to change that a little bit if you're okay with it. What I want us to do in our silence is rather than just looking forward or down at the floor, I want you to look around and lock eyes with people. And every time you lock eyes with somebody, just sit there for a few seconds. And then move on to the next. It will be really awkward. <laughs> the reason is because it is incredibly intimate. And intimacy means vulnerability. <laughs> I have done a little research too with eye contact. It's not going to surprise you, we're having less eye contact these days, if, if that doesn't surprise you. Um, but one of the other things about eye contact that's interesting is that the normal cognitive function of your brain changes when you lock eyes with somebody. It's so powerful, you actually can't think the same. So have you ever asked somebody a question and then they have to look away to answer? It's because if they're looking at you in the eyes, they can't think. That's how powerful it is. So I want to take a few seconds in silence where we just look around at each other, lock eyes, and just sit there for a few seconds. Don't move. And connect. We don't need words. We can do something else, all right? So take a few seconds. Lock eyes with some folks. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.